0: Chapter 9. Scilla and Charybdis. What is it to read? What does it mean that the words on the page make their way into my mind through my eyes to form ideas and generate thoughts? From where do thoughts arise? Certainly it is not through the eyes, for even the things I know I can see have the ability to show me lies. What about Shakespeare? Strange how so little is known about his life. Or is there really so little that is known about his life? Perhaps we know more about him than we think. Stephen seems to think so. If Hamlet is suggestive of Shakespeare's son Hamlet, what limits do his other plays form from being interpreted so closely to the reality of his life and his life situation? That question that follows is, where do we draw the line? Where does the work of an artist stop being a means for the expression of the author and become instead an identity unto itself? If I look past Ulysses, I can find James Joyce within the pages, or can I? Even though I know little about Joyce himself when sitting through the pages of his masterwork thus far there seems to be a certain amount of self-exile and otherness about Stephen and Bloom respectively which forces me to wonder about Joyce's suffering these sentiments himself. And while I also know that Joyce once, early on in his writing, referred to himself as Stephen Daedalus. Finding Joyce in both Stephen and Bloom is not difficult. I wonder how much Joyce could see himself in Stephen before he ran out of creative space within a character so specifically defined that he thus created Bloom, a man whose internal workings are not so structured that they have the potential to expand and elongate, to be sculpted and shaped. I wonder what kind of character I would write myself as if I were to embark upon such a project. Interesting that Joyce wrote himself into two. Perhaps one was not enough, and he craved the sense of parallax that comes with finding yourself not one, but two complex and completely divergent characters. What kind of author am I? Surely I am the author of something. And even more, I must be the author of something more than just my life. Yes, looking back, I know that I am the author of this project. I am the author of my experience reading Ulysses, but don't confuse me with the narrator. 17 March. Early morning. Chapter 10. Wandering rocks. Can one person be in two places at the same time? Not quite, but this chapter? In it, it seemed the all-powerful narrative arranger flexes his prowess and ability to know all of the happenings of Dublin, both as they occur externally and internally in the characters' minds. Perhaps a slight introduction to this arranger. As I've progressed through the chapters of Ulysses, now technically more than halfway through the eighteen chapters, The presence of a narrative hand who arranges the text and plot, and narrative structure as it pleases, has become an increasingly prevalent presence. This persona is not that of Joyce, for we must remember to not conflate the two, and this persona is not that of the third-person narrator found in the early chapters. No, this arranger seems to be at once aware that there is a narrative being told and also totally in control of interrupting the narrative or reshaping it as it pleases. I hesitate from referring to the arranger as a male or female and giving it pronouns as such because I do not wish to subconsciously add certain connotations or associations to the arranger. Indeed, now that I am thinking about it myself, I am not sure how even I would classify the arranger. I am inclined to suggest the arranger to be a male, and perhaps, as its presence continues in the work, this proposition of the arranger as potentially male might become more prominent. I'm sitting in the café, as I always sit in the café, with streaming limbs from a cup of coffee tickling the point of my nose. My nose is pointed down to the pages of wandering rocks where, as a reader, I am sailing between events happening all within a very small moment of time. The reading experience is unlike any I have ever experienced, for While the pages turn, I feel as though I should be moving forward in time within the plot, but time is slow to a second-by-second crawl. This chapter, broken up into eighteen sections, introduces more characters than I've yet been exposed to in the whole beginning of the book. At the beginning of the chapter, Father Conney made a rather lengthy appearance, and immediately I was taken back to the grounds of Conglose myself, as I experienced them when reading a portrait of the artist. Of course, Stephen and Bloom make their appearances in this chapter, and so does Blazins. He seems to be up to a bunch of no good. I'd really like to know what Molly sees in him. At first, I thought myself perhaps biased against Blazons, because he functioned as a man out for Bloom's wife, but as he is captured in this chapter at a greater distance, his character presented by the arranger, I feel more confident about this opinion of mine, as it is now informed by more than one perspective. This, then, made me wonder about other characters in other novels, By having an arranger, Joyce is allowing for parallaxes which reveal that character in more than just one light. The majority of other novels, however, do not do this, and I find I have a rather three-dimensional portrait of more of the characters in Ulysses now because of this. Indeed, that being said, Joyce is a man obsessed with even the tiniest detail and so this scrupulous cannot hurt in creating a realistic image of characters as well. As I close my book for the day, my eyes fatigued from reading, I slice my finger with one of the pages from chapter 10. Before I can pull my hand away in shock due to the peak of pain inflicted by the paper cut drop of blood makes its way from my bloodstream, splattering in the space between one episode and another. I've thought more about Parallax the more I've experienced to, throughout the reading of this work, and looking back... While the concept is nothing truly new or novel, the continued reminder, which is often set at the forefront of the scenes of the work, reminds me of the simultaneous nature that is constantly going in life. 20 March Afternoon CHAPTER Eleven, SIRENS Numerous times I've attended the opera and lost myself in the music. This is a common saying, and this a common experience. But in the music of this chapter, I too lost myself. I've made it out on the other side of the wandering rocks, and though I've experienced a certain amount of battering and bruising, My ship that I first set sail in remains its steady course through the novel. However, the pull of the sirens challenged my conscience and my ability to truly make it through this tomb of a novel. This chapter begins with the overture. The first page of this chapter, just looking at it, more so resembles a poem than prose and in so doing, it recalls the musical aspects inherent to the medium of poetry. Even in the presentation of the form, it seems, Joyce attempted to create an environment recalling music. The technique of interpolations, as encountered in the previous chapter, continues here, but unlike the previous chapter, there are no space breaks to delineate where one interpolation shifts to another. Here, it seems, The arranger has gone rogue, Slipping between blazons, bloom, And a blind man, a blind man, Tap, 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 tap. When my eyesight leaves me for good, Will the steady sound of a cane Be the ticking that guides my senses? With each occurrence of that word tap on the pages, something jarring shot through me. I pull my glasses from my face and set them onto the round café table adjacent to my half-drunk café and attempt to see the table of young girls sitting across the café from me. All I can make out are smudges of black and brown and blonde that shift between blinks When I close my eyes, I can hear their rounded voices in rolling cadence. When I close my eyes, I imagine them more clearly than I can see them in actuality. So which image is more real? One April afternoon. CHAPTER TWELVE CYCLOPS I am lost within this chapter, and worst of all was the wind in Paris this morning that blew so harshly, even hours later tears are still streaming from my eyes. Through the opened cafe entrance door, the subtle chimes of a church trill in the air so softly I can barely hear them. I close my eyes to listen more intently, but when a police siren wails past, I can't hear anything save its blaring. I do not know why, but I found this chapter to be the most difficult thus far in my journey of Ulysses. The interpolations continue, and the arranger seems to be messing with the nameless eye who narrates this chapter jumping in and interrupting the narrative with passages that mock the reality of the moment the I is experiencing. I found myself wondering who the true narrator was, and where do they exist? Was it the I, or was it the arranger? Does the arranger always have a hand, or does he fade in and out of the text? Of the plot, of the work. Where can I find Joyce among all these narrative layers? If I peel them all back, will Joyce even be there at the bottom to discover? Or was it truly, or was he even truly there to begin with? Back, I feel comfortable claiming this chapter to be my favorite of the book. The interesting play with language accounts for some of this, but still there remains a vague, undefined element which calls me to this chapter. Indeed, it is one of the first ones I desire to reread now that I've completed the work. Take me back to that sunset, its bleeding colours, a mélange of hues take me back to it all. 3 April, early morning, Chapter 13, Nausicaa. What is the impact of literature upon the mind? As a yoke of the sun broke over the glistening buildings lining the Rue de Matire, hues of delicate pink and soft orange ceased their depths with a canary yellow of day. The occasional scooter tutted through the needle-side streets, drivers all porting elegant vêtements, their heads capped with helmets. Pedestrians wandered at the sides of streets, peering into opening cafés, lingering at the made-up displays and polished windows. The scent of bread and pastries wafted out from the numerous boulangeries and seemed to wrap the whole of the city with this scent. If the whole city smells the same, can a married man distinguish his wife of one perfume from his mistress of another perfume? For the first time, I'm reading from the perspective of a woman, or rather, a lady, Gertie. Or am I? The initial break from the masculine-dominated narrative lured me into this chapter, I will admit, as the romantically-infused prose, especially found in the beginning 25 lines, hooked me. Perhaps I will provide a few lines here. I've yet to include any direct text in my readings, and my recounts of Ulysses, and I'm beginning to think that I should. Initially I wanted this to be a journal about my experience of reading, how I felt, what I was confused about, these sort of sentiments, yet the further in I voyage the more the text and everything created in the expanses which extend out beyond the text have enveloped me, and it is all I can do to think about the writing and the words and what they do. Just listen for yourself to the power of Joyce's writing. The following is a sample from those 25 lines I mentioned. The chapter begins as following. The summer evening had begun to fold the world in its mysterious embrace. Far away in the west, the sun was setting, and the last glow of all too fleeting day lingered lovingly on sea and strand, on the, profound, on the proud promontory of dear old health, guarding as ever the waters of the bay, on the weed-grown rocks along sandy mount shore, and last but not least on the quiet church whence there streamed forth at times upon the stillness the voice of prayer to her who is in her pure radiance a beacon ever to the storm-tossed heart of man mary star of the sea such a delicate lovely weighted image recalls the pastel works, in my opinion, of Monet or Seurat that create the visualization of a moment soft and fleeting with their impressionist strokes of brush. Of course, a painting is only a projected image of the arrangement of reality which cannot ever be known beyond the space of the moment within which it happens. This is perhaps why, I might venture to suggest, that the arranger strikes readers with its ability to view a moment in more than one instance is beyond what an individual can accomplish by himself, save such instances that are found within the masterful Ulysses. Looking back, I feel comfortable claiming this chapter to be my favourite of the book. The interesting play with language accounts for some of this, but still, there remains a vague, undefined element which calls me to this chapter. Indeed, it is one of the first ones I desire to reread now that I've completed the work. Take me back to that sunset, its bleeding colours, a melange of hues. Take me back to it all.